0: You should all have a programme, um, and please do make sure, if you, I'm sure, sure you have done it make sure you register, and yes, I see most of you have got name badges, which is great, it's good for us. Have I got one? Have? Yeah. Uh, good for <laughs> us to know who each other is. Um, I'm Carolyn Burdette, and I work here at Birkbeck in the Department of English and Humanities. And I co-organised this event with my colleague, Professor Roger Luckhurst, and we're really delighted to welcome you here today. We talked about doing an event like this because although we've been working in academia for actually quite a long time, very long time indeed, some of us, but um, we're both doing a first proper scholarly edition and Certainly when I agreed to do that, the, the task, with quite rough excitement, I soon found, in, in actually quite a shocked way, that even though as I've become a more experienced scholar, I've become more interested in the editions I use, I still actually had almost no clue about what you do to produce a scholarly edition. Um, and I realised that even the most basic sorts of things like, when do I... What is a base text, and where do I get it from, and what do I do with it? Were all things that were starting to make me have um, restless and sleepless nights. And so I did what we do in the profession, which is I thought, I'm going to find a way to get a lot of expert people in the room tell me about it, and i sort of invited you along too. Um, so really this is what I've asked our speakers today, from, you know, they come from different sorts of um, interests, but what I've asked all our speakers is to treat us as beginners. So we're going to be going through the, really the kind of groundings and basics. Some... More theoretical and conceptual sorts of issues, and this afternoon a little bit more in terms of nuts and bolts kinds of issues. Um, and hopefully, by the end of the day, we'll all leave feeling a little bit less beginnery uh, than uh, at the moment. Um, just a couple of housekeeping issues. This is an elderly building, a very, very beautiful place that we're in the Keynes Library, but um, we have elderly building. Uh, Toilets, so treat them gently. They are mainly um, on each of the staircases between levels two and three. There is an additional women's one down the end of this corridor. If you keep on going past the lift and then look to your right, you'll see it. Um, Our refreshments will have tea and coffee this morning and this afternoon, and our lunch will be served in the next room along 106. So we can move out of this room for our refreshments. Um, and I think that's all. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Catherine Sutherland, who's Professor of Bibliography and Textual Criticism at St Anne's College, Oxford. Um, she's a, a romantic scholar and is working on uh, Romantic period, a book on Romantic period. Novelists using manuscript evidence to think about drafting. Um, and she was also um, the director and principal investigator of the, of the Jane Austen Fiction Manuscript Digital Edition that went live seven years ago and is just about to come out in paper form. Um, and she's going to kick us off today. Everybody should have a handout
1: uh, which supports what Catherine's... Talking about today. I'm just going to yeah, It's, it's so quite a long six page handout. I hope everybody's got a copy. Um, so make sure
0: if you need one, yeah, you've got
1: it. Because it will underpin what I say. Um, you will know more by the end of this talk. You'll probably be very confused as well. So the handout's there to kind of cling on to in desperation, really. Um, and I'm hoping that some of the issues that I raise in the course of this hour. Um, are things that we'll return to. Um, I am going to be kind of general um, of necessity, and in a way I'm going to talk more about textual criticism, which are the theories that underpin editing, and and to to make you aware that editors are theorists. Even if in practice they don't always realise it, they, they are inevitably subscribing to some theory and understanding of what a text is, and I want to kind of lay out some of those principles that underlie the texts we all use. So I'm going to talk generally um, for the first sort of 10-15 minutes before I get on to the points halfway down the first page. So the points I'm going to make in the first 10-15 minutes are largely to do with those first three quotations. Editing has always embodied the main ideological and cultural concerns of its day. That's a hugely important statement from French genetic critic Louis A. And um, the point made below by Michelle Warren, editions shape the conditions of possibility for interpretive engagements. So editions are political, she is arguing there. And then the point underneath, which is not attributed because it's from me, editors are critics too. So it's it's those three points I'll be working around in the opening statements, making some general statements. So these statements are ways of saying that editing is foundational as a disciplinary activity and that it's not neutral. We, As literary critics, and I'm assuming we're all literary critics, and I would say, first and foremost, I am a literary critic. I can't see the point in not being a literary critic if you're engaging with literature, um, but as literary critics, we tend to assume that the editions we use are neutral in some way and that we're the ones who perform the acts of criticism and that some part of the texts have not been critically manipulated before, we, before we, um, they reach us. So, it's an activity that's not neutral. Rather, it's caught up. Editions are caught up in, they're inflected by wider issues and assumptions of the cultures from which they emerge. Behind editions that work within editions are principles, themes, methodologies that fall under the umbrella term Textual Criticism. And Textual Criticism is the branch of literary studies and whether you're thinking of literary studies as the study of classical works, Latin and Greek, or modern vernacular texts in English, French, Italian, Spanish, whatever. Um, Textual criticism is the branch of literary studies charged with establishing the status of texts. Its concern is to establish the authority of texts according to particular principles, and its practical outcome is the critical edition. And the single most important feature of textual criticism is that it's critical. That is, however rigorous its principles, it involves prejudiced speculations. That's what criticism is. It's prejudiced speculation, interpretation. It involves, in this case, speculation on the nature of text. It attempts to identify and codify what text is. It is in this sense that it is the foundational critical practice, so it, so it comes before any other textual engagement. And once it's embodied, once you're thinking about what text is, is embodied in a critical edition, the interpretation of the textual critic effectively predetermines the parameters for subsequent critical acts that we as literary critics might perform on a text. <laughs> So as a discipline, textual criticism predates the theoretical criticism of Plato and Aristotle. It's really old. It's been around a long time. Unknown Greek textual critics had, by the end of the 6th century BC, established a text of the Homeric epics by weaving parts together. Nearer home, the work of editing was massively boosted, by the 18th century commitment to establishing a canon of vernacular literature with Shakespeare at its heart. Samuel Johnson was as significant a textual as a literary critic and his preface to his 1765 edition of Shakespeare is a major statement on the value of textual engagement. I would say if you you read only one work by a textual critic in your lives, read Samuel Johnson's preface to Shakespeare. That is the most important thing to read, I think, because he, because he's a sceptical textual critic. Um, you know, he starts from the assumption that we will all find this a bit weird and we'll all resist it in some way, and then he somehow persuades us that it's actually quite important. And I think that's the position most of us start from. From the late 19th century, textual criticism became intimately bound up with an emergent discipline, and that was bibliography. And bibliography is the study of books. And as a result of this, textual criticism, and therefore editing, developed through much of the 20th century as a forensic inquiry into the condition for producing texts as books. Most of the theories of the 20th century, and they're still with us in the editions we use, presuppose that a text has to be as a book, and that has huge consequences on the kind of ideas you have about what an edition is. Once, of course, you take a text out of a book and put it into a computer, that too has huge consequences for what you think the text is and can do. The great bibliographer, a forensic examiner of books, Walter Gregg, worked here in London. Most of the really interesting. Early twentieth century work, by the way, on textual criticism is London University based. The great bibliographer Walter Gregg described textual criticism in nineteen twelve as the grammar of literary investigation. I think that's a fantastic phrase. The grammar of literary investigation because it gets you into that sort of understanding of it being absolutely foundational. You know, to to try to examine texts as a literary critic, without textual criticism, is a bit like being a medic without an understanding of anatomy. It's the grammar of a literary investigation. Um, Eugène Vinava, the medievalist Mallory editor, defined textual criticism in 1930 as a mistrust of texts. Of course, that's something literary critics don't do often enough. He, he, um, He... use that phrase in, in uh, an article called The Principles for Emendation in Studies in French Language and Literature of 1930. So textual criticism, editors ask foundational questions. What's the identity of a literary work? Can it exist apart from a document or text that embodies it? Whose labours constitute a literary work? Is it just an author or is it other people as well? When is it finished? That's a really important question might sound kind of dumb, but when is the literary work finished? How do we discover authorial intention? Um, As we go through, you'll realise that intention is a word that is not a dirty word in textual criticism. It's a fundamental and important word became a dirty word around about 1975 in literary studies, but it's never been in textual criticism, and it's, it's used precisely. It doesn't mean anything to do with how an author felt on a particular day or what his relationship to his wife was or anything like that. So how do we discover authorial intention? How far does authorial intention inform the production processes by which texts are disseminated? These are all the kind of basic questions that a textual critic and editor asks. Textual critics produce critical editions from which literary critics derive their readings. Textual critics prepare the texts on which literary critical judgments rest. Editors are critics too. An edition reflects the editor's cultural biases. It always does Edition users, therefore, have a high stake in knowing what principles underpin the edition they rely on. A more emphatic way of making the same point is to say that editorial decisions always bear critically on the texts we read and interpret. But the protocols for presenting editorial material in published editions, the way published editions order information, frequently disguises this. You get the dry and dense note on the text hidden behind the sexy critical introduction. In fact, the sexy critical introduction may or may not be relevant for the text, but the dry note on the text really is. And you know, very few of us ever read that. And certainly as undergraduates, we never read it. So read that if you read nothing else before you embark on work with an edition. Next point is the long shelf life of editions. Literary criticism is ephemeral. You know, we all want to be literary critics, I think, above anything. But the shelf life of a literary critical idea is very, very short, and it gets shorter all the time. I've just finished chairing an advisory board for the AHRC on the future of the academic book, and it's very depressing (laughs) because nobody wants them, basically other than promotions committees. Nobody's reading them. We're getting shorter and shorter print runs. We're all producing more and more of them. They're becoming more and more disposable. It's, it's, it's a horrible fact. It's a horrible fact. A print run, 200. A um, critical book. Literary criticism is ephemeral. Um, critical book also, it's, it's worth only two articles in the wraps at the moment. Ten years ago it was worth a critical book was worth six articles in research assessment exercise. Anyway, literary criticism is ephemeral. Editions remain current a long time. That's partly to reflect the amount of work involved in producing them. Some scholars spend lifetimes editing Hamlet, and then they die before it's finished. Uh, <laughs> Roger and I were talking a few minutes ago. Kathleen Tillotson, a great professor here at the University of London, began in 1963 the Clarendon edition of Dickens. It is still not finished. There are volumes of the Clarendon di- Dickens still not finished. There are editors... You know, really in their 80s, who are still working at editions they started in their 30s. Editing is laborious. Yes.
0: Um, <laughs>
1: yeah, you just, just be very depressed, yeah. Um, there is long editorial labour. There is long editorial labour. There's also huge financial investment by the presses that produce these editions. Whether they're digital, whether they're print, whether, as they tend to be nowadays, whether they're hybrid, digital and print. Huge, huge investments by scholars and by university presses. They're therefore expected to have a long shelf life, 50 to 100 years. Scholar, uh, critical books almost never have shelf lives that long, so 50 to 100 years. For example, OUP, Oxford University Press, my, my own publishers they are still issuing Robert Chapman's 1923 edition of Jane Austen's text. That's still considered by O.P. good enough. 1923. So it's almost 100 years old. So, a long shelf A few questions. Why do we assume a distinction between the activities of literary and textual criticism? Because we do. Why do we tend to occlude textual criticism? We don't tend to teach it to undergraduates. We don't tend to think they need to be concerned about the status of the text or the documents that they're working with. Does it matter which edition of a work we use? And if it does, how do we make informed use of an edition? Does its textual asa- status assume more significance, more significance with some literary genres than with others? And we have tended to think it did. We've tended to think it was more important to have really good editions of drama and of poetry than of novels. It's almost as though the bulk of the novel kind of persuades us that we don't need the same rigorous textual analysis of it. Um, textual criticism, the work done by... This is my, my last general point. Textual criticism, work done by editions, is not ideologically neutral. It's really taking up again the, the points of, of, of Michel Warren and Louis A. Textual criticism and critical editions have long been at the service of what we might call civic identity. Those literary works with a complex textual history and which are most often and most monumentally edited Are also a nation's, any nation's foundational documents. As if to enforce this, such editions have been associated, certainly in Britain and North America, with an exclusive few university presses. Or in France, they're associated with the imprimatur of the Académie Française. If you want to produce a serious edition in France, it must have the approval and stamp of the Académie Française. In America, witness the huge and ongoing influence of the MLA Center for Editions of American Authors, established in the 1960s and its successor in more recent times, the Center for Scholarly Editions. Edited works undergo rigorous post-production scrutiny before the Center for Scholarly Editions approves them. They're bound up, these editions, with the idea of the making of the state which they're produced. One explanation for this linking of national identity and textual criticism or editing is the huge cultural and political importance that foundational texts have, have had in establishing a nation's identity. The roots of textual editing as practiced today in the West lie in the humanist recovery and study of classical Greek and Roman texts. Emerging from the city states of 15th century Italy. That's just a fact. That's where our, our basic lexicon of terms for around editing and what we do with, with editions, essentially the, the cleansing and castigating of texts, which is the traditional approach to editing, this is where it starts in the 15th century states of, of, of Italy, which themselves were emerging and founding their principles of governance at the same time as they were using recovering classical texts to kind of underpin those principles and the two sets of kind of language work together. This is where the modern discipline of textual criticism began and from the very start it shares a lexicon of ideological terms with the political theory and the laws that underpin the city-state. A wonderful explanation of this is Stephanie Jed's book, it's a feminist study of textual criticism, uh, called Chaste Thinking. I would say that's the second book you should read if you're going to read two things of textual criticism. I'd read Stephanie Jed after Samuel Johnson. <coughs> Stephanie Jed, because she won't make much sense if you read her before Samuel Johnson, but read Samuel Johnson and see the remarkably sexed language she uses for textual criticism. And then, and then, read Stephanie Jed, Chaste Thinking, um, where she explores the roots of, of, of it. But there was this sort of convergence of language right at the beginning between establishing the state and its laws, establishing the texts that represent the state and its laws, to the extent that establishing the one and, as it were, um, cleansing and, and, and shaping the other are, are just inextricably linked. And this process of literary canon formation, you can see it getting underway nearer to home in England in the 18th century where it found its focus in the editing and re-editing throughout the 18th century of the works of Shakespeare. The 18th century has huge numbers of editions of works of Shakespeare because he is seen at that point as the distinctive homegrown author, (coughs) the writer who might stand against the classics and might help us establish. Uh, At the same time, we're also establishing much of our our, our constitutional law as well in the 18th century of Blackstone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The editing of Jane Austen, immediately after the First World War, it was described, the editing of Jane Austen, it begins in the trenches, literally in the trenches, Jane Austen is editing. And it's described, the edition comes out in 1923, it's described as a refuge from present realities and as reweaving our torn civilization. At this time, Jane Austen's English village, the thing that she, you know, she writes about obsessively, came to represent what World War I was fought for. It was fought over to establish and preserve the English village. Nearer home, a major Edinburgh University Press edition of the works of Walter Scott. Edinburgh University Press, not Oxford University Press. Walter Scott, Scottish writer. It was inaugurated in the 1990s Around the de- devolution of the Scottish Government, and it was funded by the Bank of Scotland and Bell's Whiskey, actually. The Bank of Scotland <laughs> is the main funder of the Edmund <coughs> Ed- Press.
0: Good editorial meetings, I bet they have really good editorial
1: meetings. They videos, do, they do. Yes, yes, we do, I should say. The scholarly edition of early Australian texts is ongoing and it's housed in the Australian Defence Academy. So editions relate subtly to a community's view of itself. Um, And I think our dissolved sense of community, the fact that we are dissolving any kind of consensus around texts at the moment, is linked intimately to our dissolving of any consensus around society too. Um, I don't think any of this is accidental. Um, Okay, so those were general points. Turn to the handout... Next section on the handout is kinds of editing. And I've really just listed there. These are definitions for you to cling on to when all else fails. And I don't think we need necessarily go through them at this point in any great, great detail. The important thing is that kinds of edition, and I'm I'm not thinking just of paper editions here, print editions, though much of what I'm saying is essentially around print, because actually digital editing, although we're all fascinated by it, there's not a great deal of it happening as yet, and we're still, most of us, relying on printed editions. But anyway, kinds of editing divide roughly into four kinds. Under one and two, the editing of classical texts, the critical editing of modern works. Um, Under these two, um, a great many assumptions are shared, actually. You might think they shouldn't be, but they are. Especially when it comes to both kinds of editing, whether you're editing a classical text or editing a a modern vernacular, um, a text of modern vernacular work, there's a great deal in traditional, classic theories of textual criticism that assume that what you're trying to achieve is an ideal state of a text that has never previously existed. Now, with classical texts where there are literally big holes in the evidence, that makes a lot of sense. You might think with modern texts, when there are no holes in the evidence, when in fact you've got more evidence than you can deal with, you might think that doesn't make sense. But in fact, this principle has underpinned most editions um, throughout the 20th century. The idea is the editor either operates with the assumption that evidence is missing or the editor operates with the assumption that evidence in some way has been distorted or misunderstood in transmission. And in both cases, the editor of a critical edition is rescuing the work, is rescuing the work. Um, If you read that passage below uh, number two, Critical Editions of Modern Works, read the passage describing critical editing from a standard Uh, Introduction to Bibliography and Textual Criticism, the uh, Williams and Abbott. Critical editing does not reproduce the text of a particular surviving document or documents, but constructs a text that may incorporate readings from several documentary texts and may incorporate editorial emendations not found in any document. It assumes that none of the documentary states representing a work is, according to some standard or need, entirely satisfactory. That's what critical editors do. It's that Vinava idea, again, of mistrusting text. In a small way, any reader who mentally corrects what he or she supposes to be a misprint is engaged in critical, critical editing. So that's critical editing. You're looking suspiciously across a range of textual documents and you're assuming that none of them for whatever reasons, and you'll come up with reasons, but none of them accurately represents the text. And it's your work as an editor to rescue the text into accuracy. Into accuracy. Documentary editing works on different principles. It has a long history, and it's been reinvigorated in recent times by the possibilities offered by computer storage of multiple states. Um, by our fascination with what we used to call pretextual states as well those are the states before print of of a work and also it's been um, stimulated by things like ebo, early English texts online and so on uh, early English books online rather we're we're more fascinated now by funny fonts old looking pages and so on documentary forms, historicised text we never used to be interested in historicised text at all. We wanted all our texts cleaned and brought up to the present date. We're now fascinated by earlier forms of text and we've worked, worked in theories about why they matter. Documentary editing is very much, it's unlike critical editing, documentary editing attempts to represent one particular documentary instantiation of a text and to bring that to the reader and of course to Persuade the reader there are reasons why you should be using that particular version, um, and and that can be that can be diplomatic transcriptions <coughs> of manuscripts. If you go into my Austin digital edition, you find their diplomatic transcriptions of the manuscript. I haven't modernized those transcriptions. It can be historic print editions. I'm thinking of things like the Women Writers Project editions. If you know those, if you work with women writings at all, which which. Keep old style spelling and so on. The Shakespeare sonnets of of Paul Hammond of, of 2012 is is is, is um, another example, and also the Cornell Wordsworth, which is really a hardcore editor's edition, and most critical readers find that edition unusable. I love it, but then I'm, I'm a hardcore editor. But what that does is is try to produce documentary states of of the the continuing versions of, of Wordsworth's poetry. So documentary editing gives us, doesn't try to press all these different forms of the text into one shape. It gives you all the discrete moments through history of the text. Critical editing is, is, tends to be a more conflationary practice. Um, it's called eclectic editing too, which we'll come on to in a minute. Are you happy with those just roughly as a kind of set of of, um, distinctions. What I've given you next is Peter Shillingsburg's definitions from what might seem like an old book, 1996, scholarly editing in the computer age. I offer his definitions and distinctions between work, text, version, draft, document. Because they are comprehensive they're widely accepted, and they're largely uncontentious. And they allow us to discriminate in a common language between entities that are often too often conflated and confused. They're certainly conflated and confused by literary critics. One of the worst things to come out of the theorising of the 1980s and 1990s, which, thank God, is behind us, that intimidating jargon that we would write, and even as we wrote it, we didn't understand it, um, one of the most confusing legacies of that dreadful language is the misuse of the word text and, and our dropping of the word work. You know, work was a really useful word, we don't use it anymore. We don't talk about works, we talk about text. Anyway, we need to discriminate as editors, as literary critics, <coughs> get away with kind of misusing those terms. But as editors, you can't. Editors, above all, must use language precisely and forensically. Use the word forensic if you like, because then it makes you feel scientific and more kind of important. But basically it's using language precisely. So the first of these work is an umbrella term, and it is really a useful term, because it incorporates all the others. So if you look down the list, document, text, draft, version, all come under the umbrella term of work. From the author's perspective, a work is the product of the imagination. It's shaped, varies, and grows, is revised, changes, develops in the author's mind. The author's notes and drafts are aids to memory and imagination. As the work achieves completeness of form in the imagination, aided by notes and drafts, the written representation of it achieves not only a fullness, but also a stasis or rigidity the fullness is useful to the ongoing process of creation, but the stasis is not. Authorial intention, that that word, authorial intentions for the whole work, the message or impressions, the organisation or the particular sequence of words and punctuation may change in some ways while they remain constant in others. So that's what a work is from an author's point of view. Um, The work exists to some extent beyond individual Written or printed witnesses. There's, there's, something, there's something more. It's slightly mystical in a way, but it's also all the forms in which it exists. From the editor's and reader's perspective, a work is represented more or less well and more or less completely by various physical forms, such as manuscripts, proofs and books. These forms are often not textually identical, So a work doesn't necessarily have textual identity, one part with another part of itself. From the receiver's perspective, a work is the imagined whole implied by all the differing forms of a text that we conceive as representing a single literary creation in all its variant forms. A work, therefore, has no substantial existence, nor is it a platonic ideal that is one fixed ideal form. It's a, a nice umbrella term. As I say, it's a word that's, work is a word that's been downgraded since the 1980s, um, except, um, except in in the field of, of book history, where it's been transferred to um, those post-authorial producers of text, where it's suddenly achieved enormous dignity. But in textual criticism before the 1980s, the words work and author were largely seen as the same thing, and I think that's something quite important to hold on to, especially when you think of the long shelf life of editions, because although some of these definitions might sound to you quite old-fashioned and out of date, the texts you're using still presuppose those assumptions. The other statements are perhaps, perhaps easier to understand a version is just one specific form of the work, the one the author attended, intended at some particular moment in time. So there could be several versions. Um, for instance, Wordsworth scholars argue how many versions there are of the prelude. Jonathan Wordsworth says there are 16. Some critics say there are three. Yeah. <laughs> a draft is a preliminary form of a version... That's okay, I think, as well. text is the (laughs) next interesting one, the one we all misuse. A text is the actual order of words and punctuation as contained in any one physical form. So a text is not the physical form itself, but it's the words and punctuation contained in that physical form. The physical form that contains it doesn't have to be paper, doesn't have to be a USB stick. It could be my voice, My voice could be the document that carries the text, as it were. So a text is just the actual order of words and punctuation as contained in any one physical form, such as manuscript, proof or book. A text is the product of the author's or the author and other's physical activity in the attempt to store in tangible form the version an author currently intends. And yet a text, the order of words and punctuation, has no substantial or material existence since it's not restricted by time and space. That is, the same text can exist simultaneously in the memory, in more than one copy, or in more than one form. The text is contained and stabilised by the physical form but is not the physical form itself. So that's a way of distinguishing text from the next word, which is document, And that's simply the thing that carries the text. These, as I say, these these definitions seem to me... I mean, they may sound a little bit difficult to come to terms with at first, but actually, once you get them in your head, they're really useful to work with. um, And they're not difficult. They're not difficult. Right. So some terms very quickly. Intentionalism, as I said, that's a, that's a, we're on the top of page three now. Intentionalism is a pretty dirty word in, in literary criticism. It denotes expressive criticism, biographical criticism possibly really, um, and it sees literature in terms of the imaginative act that produced it, you know, what was happening in the author's life at the time, you know, who was helping him, what tr- crises he might have been going through. Intentionalist editing and editors, even um, even post um, sort of um, editors, will use terms like intention. Um, it's 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 quite it's using quite a precise and different way. It's it's essentially to do with the status the state of texts. So you do try to adduce from a text an intention, but that's the whole point. The intentions are adduced from differences across textual states, not from anything that you might kind of adduce from biographical criticism. So it, it's arrived at by comparing texts with texts. It's arrived at by looking at variants. It's arrived at variant readings of particular words or even of punctuation. And making patterns out of those and making, interpreting those patterns and making decisions from those. Um, and an eclectic text, it's still largely what is produced in critical editions in paper. <coughs> eclectic texts are texts that are produced by looking at a range of authorially intended witnesses, authorially intended texts, And deciding um, some kind of order of purpose from those. Weaving those texts together to form a new text. Um, The standard way of doing that is to start with a copy text. This is where things get a little bit difficult. You start with a copy text. Um, In classic textual criticism, and that's the textual criticism that underpinned most editions in the course of the 20th century the assumption was that you work from printed states of a text, you do not go back to manuscripts if a work was printed in an author's lifetime if it wasn't printed in an author's lifetime then you have to go to manuscript states because you assume that that is the last time an author had oversight of the work but if the work goes into printed circulation in an author's lifetime What you then choose to work with is your copy text. This is according to the standard theory is the first printed edition in an author's lifetime. That's your copy text or your base text. It's the same term. Um, And you then have permission or give yourself permission according to the theory to weave into that text, that order of words and punctuation, any changes Especially in words, probably not in punctuation, but especially in words that you believe were made by the author in subsequent revision of that first printed edition. And what you as an editor then produce is essentially an edition that the author never saw, but which you argue from textual variants the author always intended. And that's classic theory of textual criticism as it operated for much of the 20th century. The next passages, I'll show how you established that theory and then how it was gradually unpicked up to the present day. But that's the theory of classic textual criticism. It's something called new bibliography and hugely, hugely dominant as I say, in editions in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Even now, I mean, even now people are, are producing the editions in which they argue, I'll take the first printed edition as appeared in the author's lifetime and I will look at <coughs> substantive changes, that's changes of words in later editions, and I will insert those into that first printed edition. You produce an eclectic text which is kind of mash-up in a way of, of different and with some authors that can be a huge mashup Mm. with other authors it can be a tiny mashup Um, but that was the theory and it was a theory that served well once while you were editing texts as books because a book is finite it's limited as to what it can do and what you do is you're quite open as an editor about what you're doing so you will weave into your finished reading text your eclectic text you're a text that you say you believe, as an editor, the author intended. You'll weave later states into that text. So it could be a text of, say, an author who finished their work in 1930, but like Dickens or like Charlotte Bronte or like George Eliot is, is revising their work for the next 30, 40 years, you will weave readings into that text from 40 years later. So you'll be, as it were, matching together an early author's view of their text and a later author's view of the text. But what you would put either at the foot of the page or at the back of the page is is all the variant readings so that the reader can unpick what you've done and they can go back to the original text because they can see what the word was. They can see the other possibilities that you have rejected for that reading. So in theory they could actually re-edit from what you've done and get back to those different, different versions of the text. But that's eclectic editing intentionalist editing and it works with the assumption in the classic theory that an author's last thoughts about their work are always their best thoughts so that was, that was the theory in its purest form and the passages that follow theories of text they may seem stale to you. you know, I'm starting in 1972 which is you know goodness what a long time ago that was 1963 1981 and so on but remember the long shelf life of the edition Um, this way of thinking um, that underpins those editions as well has a long shelf life simply because the editions you um, (coughs) are still using we're still using the cleansed platonic eclectic editions envisaged by um, theorists like like Thorpe and, and Bowers So the classic theorists of of that approach to editing that I've just described to you are um, Fredson Bowers and James Thorpe, both American thinkers. And their classic ideas really are set out in passages one and two. So James Thorpe, The Principles of Textual Criticism. 1972, it's still a very accessible and easy to understand book, and an intelligent book too, The role of textual criticism is to provide essential mediation. As we go through these passages, you'll see that as the theories change, some words never change. Essential and virtue and cleansing and correcting. These words keep coming through all the time. The role of textual criticism is to provide essential mediation between the author and his audience, between the creator and the responder. The textual critic... Um, you, know, pretty, you put in the word editor if you want. is a go-between. He is the agent of the writer to whom it matters what the reader reads. He is the agent of the reader to whom it matters what the writer wrote. Thus, textual criticism has a place in the preservation of our literary heritage. Whatever value it has derives from this service, its practical importance hinges on one simple fact – the texts of the works which constitute our literary heritage become progressively corrupt. The process of the transmission of a text is full of chance for error at every step of the way. The typist or the copyist cannot for long follow the text without making a mistake. The compositor, the proofreader, the pressman and the binder all err from time to time. Some people write editions, some make corrections and some delete passages – all in the sweet name of improvement. These and many other people have a hand in the transmission of the text with thousands of possibilities for change. Every one of the changes that actually takes place without the knowledge or consent of the author can be only an error, only a corruption. The text is never self-correcting or self-rejuvenating and the ordinary history of the transmission of a text without the intervention of author or editor is one of progressive degeneration. Yeah, really strong words right? <laughs> mm-hmm. so the editor or the <coughs> textual critic is an essential mediator you know, the editor is always bigged up in these statements the editor is the person who preserves our literary heritage without editors you just have corrupt decaying text everyone else apart from the editor who handles a text other than the editor and the author in some way corrupts it so the editor, like the author, stands outside of taint. It's a very heroic view of what an editor is. Very heroic view of what an editor is. Um, as I say, that behind, what, behind these kind of... Well, working with these in, in practice, what they do, what the, what the, the people who believe this as, as a view of text do, is, is, is they choose a copy text and then they weave into it. those those later forms of of the text that they believe are authorially sanctioned. And that is the way they, as it were, hold back corruption in the text. They weave those in, they distinguish editorial changes from misprints because everybody involved in the social production of the text in some way is kind of dirtying it. One of the assumptions behind this theory, especially as it's practised in America, it's an Anglo-American theory of editing, but especially as it's practised in America... The belief is that history corrupts. History is the enemy of meaning. In Britain, we've always had a a happier and messier relationship to history. It hasn't been interpreted as firmly as that in the British tradition. But in American tradition, it's very much about texts really have to be cleansed. History is the enemy of meaning. Um, And so... You have to distinguish misprints from authorial intentions and changing, and only the editor really is able to do that, combining in the one text both the earliest printed textual form and the author's latest intention for that. The moral inflection of the language, especially um, um, in the next passage with Bowers, um, has been criticized recently from within the American camp by um, Joseph Gridgely in his book Textual Alterity, where he links Bower's work, which begins in the 1960s, to McCarthyite um, ideas in America, too, that were washing through America. Remember, these ideas were, were, this theory of text was established essentially in America to promote editions of white American male authors. And so his arguments have been described as eugenic, and in many ways they are eugenic in the textual sense. Um, whether you can you know, take them farther and see him as, uh, as McCarthy is, is, is different. He was actually, he was a dog breeder, and it strikes me as, as that's not coincidental, mm. <laughs> that he was interested in breeding dogs as well as... <coughs> text. Anyway, Bowers... The recovery of the initial purity of an author's text and its revision, insofar as this is possible from the preserved documents, and the preservation of this purity, despite the usual corrupting process of reprint transmission, is the aim of textual criticism. A definitive edition, no one now would talk about, we all talk carefully about critical edition, but In these days, and right through into the 80s, we talked about definitive editions. You know, once once the editor had been in and cleansed this naughty text, then it would stand for all time. It was definitive. But now we say critical, we're more cautious, even though we still expect the editions to last 100 years if they're in print, seven years if they're digital. A definitive edition is completed by an appropriate introduction and textual apparatus. In fact, the text and the apparatus necessarily complement each other. So you note here how the editor is becoming as important as the author. In establishing the text of a 19th century book, no gain comes of modernising or merely reprinting any single document. Machine collation, and he's now trying to give his prejudiced assumptions some kind of scientific. Backing. And of course, digital editors do that too. They pretend that machine collation somehow happens neutrally. Of course, it doesn't. Machine collation will not only discover significant textual variants, but the analysis of seemingly minor typographical points may enable an editor to accept variants as authorial or reject them as compositorial, a part of the production process. Essential features of a critical apparatus include variants as. Res- revealed by machine collation. So bows combines a kind of moral and scientific diction. Only editors can attribute integrity to, to a text were the editors. Um, interestingly, passage three, James Thorpe again, who gave us the first passage on the importance of the editor mediating He already, as he writes, and this is why I think his book is still very intelligent, he can unpick some of his own assumptions as he goes along. Because he realises, even in 1972, that there's a real problem with eclectic editions. is that sometimes we're squeezing together versions of an author's text that really we should accept have to stand separately as separate versions. So a major problem is the existence of the work of art in multiple versions, each created by the author. The principle which is involved in selecting among them touches the nature of composition, the work in process, the work in completion, the work in recompletion. The basic proposition which I submit about works created by authorial revision is that each version is either potentially or actually another work of art. Recent scholarly investigations, and he's thinking here of editions of Tennyson's poetry, have revealed that authorial revision is embodied in multiple printed versions to an extent that seems to be almost limitless. It's a bit puzzling to know why this dictum of final intentions, this new bibliographic dictum, should for so long have passed unchallenged. For it's much like saying that an author's last poem or last novel or play is, as a general rule, his best one. It may be and it may not be. So he complicates the intentionalist view of editing, the implied purity and singleness that you can deduce from, from, from an author's continuing revision of their work, by suggesting that authors have multiple intentions for their works and that these don't necessarily group in a single evolutionary line. A later intention, he says, doesn't necessarily oust an earlier one. You know, think, as I said earlier, of the various preludes by Wordsworth. who would try to mash them all together now into one prelude? Or Pope's two dunciads, or, you know, early and late Henry James, we accept that there are two Roderick Hudsons, or Yeats's poetry. poetry, I and Yeats, who is constantly said, remaking himself every time he rewrote the same poem. You can't mash those up into a single. Um, and this has been particularly useful. It, it, it led to what's called a theory of versioning. Uh, it's been particularly useful in our thinking about um, editing romantic and modernist texts. Um, Stephen Parrish, one of the editors of the controversial Cornell Wordsworth and controversial Cornell Yates editions takes things further in the next passage, and he talks about final intention editing, this new bibliographic way of editing, as the Whig interpretation of literature, the idea that things can only get better. Um, I return to my beginning, he says, by reasserting my dissent from Whig interpretations of a literary text with their notions of an inner logic of inexorable growth what could have been foreseen from the start as the author's final intention. Against these notions, I would the, plead to the autonomy and va- validity of each steady state of the text as it changes in confused, unpredictable ways through patterns which the author may never have foreseen, let alone intended. So he's saying, you know, we can't assume that... Although an author keeps going back and revising their text, perhaps changing her passages, as Dickens does, as Virginia Woolf did, as what authors tend to do. We can't assume that their thinking necessarily got better. Or even that they're thinking as authors, they may be thinking as readers. You, you see it in the prelude, in the 1850 prelude, and you think, oh my goodness, you know, Wordsworth's really lost it here. He's <laughs> lost that visionary gleam completely. He's forgotten entirely <coughs> what it was to be a small boy. Whereas, you know, in 1798, he kind of could still remember it. So it things don't necessarily get better. The final revision by an author is not necessarily their best thought. Every. Every version is valid in some measure and by some test. There isn't always an ameliorative process in authorial change. So that complicates things. That that hands over to the editor a real problem, what you do. Some editors moved then from a notion of final intention editing to primitive editing, as it's called by romantic theorists of editing. Choosing the author's first version as the best Others are still working across the versions, but in a more discriminating, less mechanical way. Then we move on to, and these are my final kinds of theories of editing, two real challenges that come out of the whole idea of versioning. Um, And One is a sociological strain of textual criticism that we can associate with Jerome McGann, the work of Jerome McGann, and the other is a genetic theory of editing that some of us, I know women and I are both interested in genetic editing, but it's not an Anglo American approach. It tends to be a more continental European approach, uh, practiced much more by, by textual theorists and critics in, um, in France, in Germany, in Belgium, often on British writers. Um, some American critics are also approaching the genetic, uh, looking at text genetically, but, but as I say, it hasn't been taken up massively. Um, By Anglo-American thinkers, but first of all, um, Carney's making the most of a mess, which is a kind of a statement, for cautious statement for genetic editing. Um, It's the concept of the well-made text that needs jettisoning. We need to begin to talk about writing as a process with a significance in and of itself. Composition as an activity of consciousness and not merely as a means of producing ultimate meaning. Can we begin to understand manuscripts and revisions? So we're not thinking now about printed books, we're thinking of what used to be called the pretext. All those versions that come up to print, that are there before the moment the author says it's finished and presses the button for print or going into production. Can we begin to understand manuscripts and revisions not as imperfect or approximate versions of some unrealized final event, which is how it's seen in the Anglo-American New Bibliographic mode, but as events unto themselves with their own self-satisfying logic and rationale? So for theorists of genetic and later the second passage of all those in social editing, the answer is very much... Um, We need to kind of look at every single version of a text that may possibly have existed at any particular moment as having some kind of validity. For geneticists, um, book-bound editions struggle to accommodate, of course, the processes of composition, but that's essentially what they're interested in. They're interested in the processes of composition, in unpicking the author's thoughts and going back to the beginning rather than, as it were, establishing things from the end. Um, A genetic edition um, encoded in in print would be um, 1984, Gabler's Ulysses. I don't know if anyone's tried to work with that synoptic um, critical edition by Gabler. It's very difficult to, to work with. Um, to learn the synoptic codes and then to unpick it but if you do so you can see you can work through you know, something like 20 versions of, of Joyce's instantiation of Ulysses right back to the earliest manuscript form and you can see the evolving of the author's text, that is what genetic critics are interested in evolving of genetic text and you can see how the computer is just the answer to the geneticist's prayer oddly <laughs> oddly The computer is the answer to the social editor's prayer as well. I find this particularly odd. Um, But what the social textual editor is interested in, and that's what McGann is, and and many of us are since McGann, really, um, is they're interested in the idea that every instantiation of a text is a social event. It's a performance of that text. And therefore, every one of them has a legitimacy of some kind. It's completely reversing the idea that that history is the enemy of meaning. Now, history makes meaning. Every text has its moment in history, and there are historical um, pressures on that text, which are of interest to us as readers. And therefore, what we want to recover is every, potentially every, social instantiation of of the text. If you look at uh, the McGann passage, but different texts in the bibliographical sense embody different poems in the aesthetic sense, despite the fact that both are linguistically identical. The method of printing or publishing a literary work carries with it enormous cultural and aesthetic significance for the work itself. Finally, we can begin to see that the essential character of a work of art, so he's using Balas language, but he's turning it against it, is not determined sui generis, but is rather re- the result of a process involving the actions and interactions of a specific and socially integrated group of people. So it's social process rather than authorial intention that determines the essential character of a text. So we're now interested in all those post-production values that are added, added by compositors, by, by typesetters, by those who just lay out the text. We're interested, says, says McGann, within the book, in bibliographic codes as well as linguistic codes. The codes that the book carries. <coughs> the mise en page and the paratexts and all those things that turn the text into a book Ironically, he says, the best way of delivering those to a reader is the anti loss, the computer. Computer, because we can just archive loads of versions. It's not critically very sophisticated, I think, this way of arguing, to be honest. Whereas I think the genetic way of arguing is critically sophisticated. This doesn't seem to me to be so. To say that, you know, you can just take photographs of everything or, you know, you know. yeah, anyway, but that's what he's saying. Um, Writing um, of his, later in his book, Radiant Textuality, um, he writes there... um, Just perhaps read the whole thing very quickly. Writing of his experience as editor of Byron's complete poetical works, which he edited, incidentally, with OUP, under new bibliographic conditions, and he immediately saw the problems in that edition. The traditional distinction, he says, between documentary and critical editing... Documentary editing implies, as it were, a social, historical context for your editing. Critical editing implies the authorial context, right? The traditional distinction emerged again and again, he says, as a vexing and insoluble problem as he was editing Byron in multiple book-bound volumes. I chose the Jiao because of its complex textual of evolution between 1812 and 1815, as it turned out, I found no way to edit this poem in the Oxford English text format without serious misrepresenting or obscuring its original textual condition. The work had too many documentary incarnations, all of them authoritative in different ways. Editing in paper-based formats literally creates the set of contradictions that mark the differences between documentary and critical approaches to editing. But, he says, within the electronic environment, an edition is conceivable that might undertake as an essential part of its work a regular and disciplined analysis and critique of itself. Electronic texts have a special virtue that word again, that paper-based texts do not have. They can be designed for complex interactive transformations. Thus the general theoretical significance of editorial projects once scarcely regarded, which is utter nonsense, grows more clear than ever when they are drawn into the orbit of an encompassing innovation, digital textuality. So what you can do in the digital environment, because you're not limited as to pages, is you can put every single Instantiation of their text in there. And then you can offer pathways through them. You can order them as a critical editor, if you wish, and say to, to your users, you know, this one is to preferred to that one, or else you can hand over to the user the problem of deciding which version to use. But what you're not doing is weaving them together into some finally intended version. This is very much, McGann's thinking is very much, because he is concerned with, with um, every social instantiation of a text as, as, as relevant. It's not even so much every euphoria instantiation, except for the fact that each one of them went into some productive form and... Um, that, that, therefore, has carries with it you know kind of as a historical capsule its own um, reception history at the time, which attributed meanings to it, which he says are now significant to us as modern readers to to unpick and so much of McGann's thinking around text is, is actually based on uncovering for us unexpected historical readings of texts which Um, I think his thinking is particularly persuasive and influential on literary critics rather than on textual critics, to be honest. Um, But anyway, that's, that's, that's what it is. So we now have the big database editions, which I think are pretty intimidating for users, but they do assume that editing is something that we all want to do at some level, and that we perhaps want to do it for ourselves rather than have someone else do it for us. So, so that's how the, the theorising very briefly is I just, just if I just mention the last okay, couple because, of things we're at time but, but I think yeah. if
0: you just want to
1: all I want to out do out the the right place is place, well so. why I put these on is because I thought and you can think about these at, at your leisure at another time <coughs> is some of the things that are at stake and as it were I've just anatomized three things from what editions often do and one of the things I wanted to I don't think I need to point out to you though, though it's useful to have it pointed out is how gendered the language of traditional textual criticism is and how badly that has served female editors but also anyone editing women's texts because women's texts are caused, caught in a double bind in the, um, the theorising of textual criticism which goes right back to the preface to Shakespeare Johnson which is why I put it on the handout texts are themselves feminised they're corrupt. Often they're passive as well. They've been kind of corrupt unknowing, corrupted unknowingly. And they need to be castigated. And they need to be reformed because they're full of licentiousness. Um, and this is a language that goes right through into, into you know, our, our present use of text and criticism, the idea that the text has to be castigated. It does, it does put place the female text, If all texts, as it were, have this feminised... Aspect to them. It doesn't mean the, the female editor and the female editor, say, of a woman's text is in a double bind. Um, I, I just say um, that's why many uh, feminist editors have t- tried to find another theorising for, for editing texts. So I just put that forward as, 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 as an idea to think about. Second idea to think about is old versus modern spelling. <clears throat> we don't realise that canonical texts almost always are in modern spelling. When you recover an old text that has never been edited in the modern era, you have before you a dilemma. Do you modernise the spelling or not? If you don't modernise the spelling, you make it seem inaccessible. You also can make it seem a little bit uneducated, a little bit unsophisticated. And I've just given you a few kind of examples of, of people thinking through what's at stake we, because we're so used to canonical texts being cleansed, we think of them as our contemporaries. They're part of our lifeblood. When you bring a new text, especially from an early period, into, the, into um, public awareness, you've got to make this decision one way or the other. And I just thought those passages there are, are, are quite pertinent and interesting for that. And the final thing is annotation. Annotation has gone crazy for Act's gone crazy, And one of the things I, I think we do need to think about is, <coughs> on earth in, in a Google world, do we need to annotate texts at all? Can you be too informed about a text? One of the wonderful things Samuel Johnson says in his preface to Shakespeare is, annotation refrigerates the mind and that's the word Johnson uses in 1765, refrigerates the mind, you can have too much meaning you can be held up too often and of course it's, it's, it's the meeting of commercial editions with scholarly and critical editions, scholarly and critical editions never used to have annotation but the commercial imperative, the imperative of the marketplace that drives everything we all do now, is critical annotation it's also bloody easy, you know. That's why, that's why I do it. Textual, textual this is quite difficult, but critical annotation is easy. But think about it: who needs it, yeah. and how far it determines text as well. And of course, it's a thing that goes out of date most quickly. The earliest um, editions of Austen, mean critical editions in the early 20th century, had half a page of annotation. They now, each novel carries more than its own body weight of annotation with it. And you get the daftest things annotated. Um, In the Cambridge edition of Bansford, (laughs) biscuits are annotated. Um, Fanny Price is eating buns and biscuits, and there's more or less a recipe for biscuits at the end. And the editor said to me, well, it's because it's going to be read in the Asian subcontinent, where people maybe don't know what biscuits are. It's very true, but you know, mm. would you turn to Mansfield Park for the rest of this? <laughs> anyway. On that bombshell. Yeah. On that note we will have. need some biscuits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, hey, I, I went, went
0: over. I don't <laughs> need time but obviously we're we're slightly different from having a lot of information given. that's right so we worked hard enough mm-hmm. i think that was absolutely fabulous yeah, really brilliant. brilliant way for to stop so thank you yeah.